0: Hello and welcome to Liars League, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. Tonight, our theme is Master and Servant. Since our last event, we have new masters. Their names are Princess Charlotte and Prince George. (laughs) To celebrate, we'll have three sycophantic stories in the first half. An interval where you can whip your manservant or something before we resume with the infamous Zeisley book quiz. (coughs) And three more masterful tales. We are, of course, below stairs. And as such, all servants are reminded to silence their mobile devices. It doesn't happen at Downton Abbey, so it shouldn't happen here. Very good. We shall begin. Our first story of the evening, we work out by Rua Dean. We read by Alex Woodall. Rua is a poet, writer and occasional journalist, currently living in Washington, D.C. His lies have previously been formed at the Leagues in New York and Leicester, but this is the first in his hometown. For links to other poems and stories, check out his website. Alex has worked in comedy for the last 14 years on stage, TV, and radio. He DJs extensively around the country in clubs, festivals, zombie game chase 2.8 hours later, and is one half of the Coffin Dodgers Disco, which happens here on the first Friday of the month. Interest? include ballroom dancing, Native American art, and pornography.
1: Alex. (laughs) Workout by Roar Dean. Well, let me tell you something about me. I'm a knockout. 100% pure man. I bone for fun. I mean, I don't have to work for it. If I told you I used to work at a gym, you might not be surprised. But it wasn't just any gym. It was exclusive. A place where they hired the best instructors. And that's how I came across Kramer. Before I met the guy, I was warned. My manager gave me this big lecture about how we were going to have a customer in with a special demand who'd requested me by name because... I was known to be the best. Jeez, he talked such bull most of the time. Anyway, the message was, whatever this guy wants, you give it to him. He was gonna have his own studio at the back of the gym, separate from everything else. Nobody could know. When he finally told me who it was, I was kind of disappointed. I was hoping for somebody like Michelle Obama. What I got was a punked-out... 50-year-old rocker. Sure, I'd heard of the great Massacre, or Kramer Otley, as he was known when offstage. He was the king of goth, but I'd never listened to his music. That shit was just noise and self-loathing. So, the guy rocked up to the gym one day, and I wasn't quite sure how to play it. Something put me off the, hey, buddy, slap him on the back and talk about women approach but I wasn't sure about the kiss-his-ass-because-he's-a-star-and-he's-really-fucking-important approach, either. He was bigger than I expected, tall and kind of built. Not like an instructor, but uh, when you've worked with people in this industry, you get an eye for the ones that were meant to live. He had these big tattoos that covered pretty much his whole body, serpents sliding down both arms with the heads tattooed on his hands. He talked about not being a gym rat and how it was important that his fans didn't know he went to a place like this because it would spoil his image. He said image was everything and looked at me like he was going to kill me. Tell me about it, I said, giving my muscles a flex. Maybe this spaced out junkie was looking to connect. I laughed, but he didn't, so I shut up. Anyway, after he'd walked the room a little, pacing it like a prison cell, he sat down. Then he started talking again, and it turns out he's after a little role play. Not like George Michael in a toilet type role play, not yet anyway. Just motivational. He wanted me to push him, keep him on his toes. Easy, I thought. I do that all the time. This guy really doesn't know a thing about gyms. That's pretty normal, I tell him. The guy backs out from the work. No, he told me, what he wanted probably wasn't quite normal. He wanted me to swear at him, call him names, really get on top of him. Well, my manager had said anything goes, and it didn't bother me. Then he pulled out a list. A fucking list of terms he wanted me to use. He came up real close, eyeball to eyeball, and shattered them in my face. I mean, I took. I didn't look scared or anything, but I wasn't comfortable either. Fucking pussy, cock whore, waster prick, ghetto scum, twisted felch. I know I could have pulled out then. I knew this was a little weird. But I had my eye on you, road bike, and my manager taught special bonuses, and anything goes. So I just said, yeah. It was a little bit odd at first, but after a few classes, I got the hang of it. None of my other clients let me abuse them in this way. I started to save up my frustrations from the week and just let rip right in his face. But it didn't stop there. After a couple of months, he turned up to class with another request. He told me he wanted a little more make-believe. Shit, I thought, where is this going? He threw down a Green Army kit bag at my feet. I opened it and... Inside was a set of military fatigues of the kind Kramer told me worn by the recruiting sergeants of the U.S. Marine Corps. I was to be the sergeant, he was the rookie. I know what you're thinking. I could have just told him I wasn't his guy. I could have said that, right? But I didn't. I was getting mad bonus cash from the boss, and to tell you the truth, I was enjoying it. I practiced in the mirror. I looked at myself and thought, yeah, hell, I could get through training, no problem. One, two, three, four, United States Marine Corps! The next morning, I got in early and set the studio up with climbing ropes, vault box, and a set of monkey bars. With a step routine and a playlist of Full Metal Jacket and Team America, we had to work at. I'll break him, I told myself as his car pulled in behind the gym. I won't lie. The role came easy. With my usual middle-aged banker and lawyer clients, it was the encouragement that they got them off. The fitter I made them think they were, the more classes they paid for. But, I realized, as Private Otley fell from the rope for the third time, whilst I abused him for being more garbage man than Spider-Man, that I'd had his voice in the back of my head throughout my classes. When I was telling somebody that they were doing great, what I was really thinking was, that's not a squat thrust, you no-good horse son of a bitch! (laughs) The routine worked for a few months, until one morning he turned up in his gray tracksuit again. I called him to attention, but Private Otley did not respond. He just threw a black duffel bag at my feet and left. I opened the bag. The first thing that I took out was a whip. Oh shit, I thought, this is getting weird. (laughs) It was followed by a red tailcoat, wool pants, a silk waistcoat, and a pair of shiny black shoes. Inside the pocket was a neatly typed message. You are Lockhart, the ringmaster. I am Bozo, the clown who ran away. As a result of my truancy, you will have to get me back into shape and back into the ring. You will mock me, to my face and to the audience at large. I will be captured in about a month. I know what you're thinking. Perhaps this was the moment to say, enough is enough and call it quits. But I didn't want to. I was excited by the idea. The next day, a man arrived at the gym to measure my head and provide me with a bespoke silk top hat. I felt like a million dollars. Like a star. As I stood in front of the mirror, checking out the way my chest bulged out of the red tailcoat, I knew that I'd moved up in the world. When I asked my manager if I could make some modifications to the studio area, he told me that he was surprised it had taken so long for me to ask and that I could do whatever I wanted. But he did not, under any circumstances, want to know the details. The account, he said, was unlimited. Weird, right? Well, by the time Master Kerr came back, the studio was a circus tent, complete with disco ball, a sawdust floor, trampoline, and a mini trapeze. I'd stopped short of hiring some circus entertainers, but only just. I didn't need to worry. He brought his own. A black van pulled up and three hefty clowns lifted him by his jacket and hauled him in in front of me. we found him, master, the Pierrot said as he presented his captive, who they pushed to the ground in front of me. He won't run away again, master. Kramer looked up at me with contempt. His red nose looked faded, as though he tried to remove the evidence of his clown identity. Take him inside, boys. I felt bigger than the world. I set him to running routes around an obstacle course i created with the circus gear. The clowns just sat around laughing and making jokes about how slow he was and how big his ass looked in his pants. Did I mention his pants? They decked the man out in prison garb, black and white hoops. Boy, did those clothes make him sweat. It continued like that for weeks. I got better with the whip the more I used it. I started cracking it just behind his ear so that he jumped or yelled like a dog. Each time that that happened, the clowns would go crazy, shouting and cheering. And there I was in the middle, commanding it all. This was my show. Fuck, bozo. It was right there about then that something changed. Not in the routine, but in me. I stopped caring, about my other classes. I'd pace the floor of the circus when Kramer wasn't there and visualize the next performance. I'd meet the clowns after work and learn new words, new moves. We'd get shit-faced, and they'd talk about turning Bozo into some kind of freak show as punishment, or selling Mom to another troupe, and they'd look to me for encouragement, like I was the one who made the decisions. It's not like I can say... I know what you're thinking. I should have pulled away then, because by then, I couldn't. I wasn't thinking in that way anymore. I wasn't really sure what I wanted, but I knew that it started with crossing a line and making sure that that no-good, skull-fucking son of a bitch knew who was the master. The moment the clowns dragged his sorry ass through the door the next day, I knew the time had come. The first crack of my whip brought howls of laughter from the clowns. They all came forward to get a closer look, excited and tense. I caught him right on the ass as he jumped through the hoop. He went over forwards in a kind of barrel roll, but got up quick and kept going. So I hit him again, this time right between the shoulder blades, and the clowns went even wilder and came closer. I could smell them and feel them shuffling around behind me. Bozo was not going down easy. And that's what I wanted, right? I wanted him to go down. Or did I? I? I wasn't sure. At the third strike, he ducked like some superhuman sense had told him where the wit would go. He rolled sideways and came up standing, facing me, his arms hanging down, his face wild with something like fear or excitement or lust, but not quite any of those things. The clowns were going apeshit, hooting and hollering and screaming obscenities. They fanned out into a ring with Bozo in the middle. I hesitated for the briefest moment, and I heard my manager's voice saying, Whatever this guy wants, give it to him. I pointed with the whip in the direction of the trapeze, and the clowns opened a space for him, but Bozo didn't move. He looked around him at the other clowns who stared back like a pack of hungry hyenas. And then he made a break for the door. But the clowns caught him. It took three of them to bring him under control as he bucked like a mule. I saw the shock jump from his eyes and then disappear, replaced by a kind of surrender. The clowns saw it too. Something ran through us like electricity. This time, there would be no way out. Bozo was staying with the circus. Thank
2: you, Alex. A uh, bit of the top. Oh yeah, that's fine. That's fine too. Yeah.
3: Get on with it. <laughs>
2: Beautiful. Okay. Beautiful.
0: Like Excellence. And so, our second story of the evening will be "Slave to the Lamp" by Lisa Stout, to be read by Susan Moisel. Lisa splits her time between working as a receptionist and scribbling story ideas onto anything that doesn't run away fast enough. Her novel, Shadowbound, can be found on Amazon, and she hopes to write many more as dark as possible. Susan trained at Drama Studio London and has appeared in a variety of roles, including Elizabeth I, an elderly hypochondriac and a Russian prostitute. She has been involved most recently in a series of stage productions raising money for armed forces, charities helping soldiers and veterans suffering mental wounds.
4: Saved to the Lamp by Lisa Stout. I have served many masters over the centuries. Each encounter began the same, with a touch against the golden surface of my prison. It was that shiver of contact that awakened me from the sleep of my captivity. This time was no different. I flickered into being resisting the urge to pop from my vessel like the cork from champagne. There would only be one chance to make that first impression. So instead, I rose like vapour from the ancient bottle. Oh, freedom. The form I took was of a dark-haired maiden, Others of my kind chose shapes designed to inspire fear. I preferred a subtler game. There would be time for adjustments, as I came to know the mortal who commanded me. Then a man stepped into view. My summoner. I assessed him with the skill of long practice, taking in the well-made clothes and confident demeanour. It was clear from these details that he was a man of high status. That was unsurprising. Most who called on me were leaders. What caught me off guard was how unfazed he seemed to be by my manifestation. It is a rare human who can face down such an apparition unflinching. This one witnessed my entrance with poise the ease behind his smile never slipping. So there is truth behind the legends, he observed. I searched his eyes for hidden fear, but found them disarmingly guileless. If his confidence was a mask, then he wore it well. Some of them, I acknowledged warily, It would be a mistake to put faith in everything you read. I never do. We regarded one another. His smile was too gracious to be unpracticed. There was nothing in his manner to suggest that he'd heard of my... darker indulgences. Yet I couldn't rid myself of the conviction that he did know, somehow. The thought was intriguing. Looking into his eyes, I abandoned any notions of an easy game. To my mild surprise, this revelation pleased me. How may I serve? My tone held the faintest hint of irony. Most would have missed the nuance, but the flicker of his smile suggested that he was well aware of the peculiarities of our situation. That a being of such power should be bound to serve the whims of humankind was laughable. Fortunately, there are ways to write the scales. I might be bound to my summoner for now. Soon enough, he would learn, as they all did, how delicate that balance of power was. In the end, it wasn't I who would be a slave to the land. My summoner had glanced away. I sensed a wariness about him, but when he turned to me, there was no hesitation. There is a woman, he began. She is married, I want her to leave her husband. A familiar glee warmed my soul. Only practice kept the vicious triumph from my borrowed fate. That was the downfall of humans. That they were slaves to such primitive drives. I stood in a world populated by well-dressed monkeys, scrabbling in the shit out of jealousies they seldom even understood it was as predictable as it was beautiful. The smile I committed was knowing. She will be free for you to take, I assured him with just a hint of conspiratorial anticipation. Humans responded better when allowed to forget how alien their benefactor was. You misunderstand, my summoner corrected me gently. The woman in question is my wife. I said. Out of anything in this world that I could grant, I found myself clarifying, your wish is that I bring an end to your marriage. It sounds extreme, he admitted, but you see, my career places me under enormous scrutiny. If I abandoned my wife, it would cost me valuable support. A politician must at least give the appearance of living by his values. Now, if Cynthia were to abandon me, the public would feel sympathy. I would be free, after a suitable period, to pursue another. And so the truth would out. It wasn't a terrible wish under the circumstances. The command had limited scope, restricting the damage that I could do. Restricting, but not preventing entirely. That was a distinction he would learn soon enough. In the meantime, it shall be done. Finding the woman proved easy. She was in the home they shared. I took a moment to admire the view. And whatever my son had found distasteful in her spouse, it couldn't have been her looks. Before closing in, she made a beautiful corpse. My master was on the phone when he found her. His eyes widened as they took in the bloodied floor with its lifeless occupant. Excuse me for a second, I'll call you back. I watched keenly as he folded away the device, fumbling the obviously familiar gesture. There was a moment of silence as he knelt beside the fallen woman. Taking in the wounded wrists, his gaze started to the knife which had slipped from her prone fingers. I assume she left a note. His words were clipped. Abandoning my invisibility, I took on form beside him. Upstairs, in your bedroom. He nodded tersely, heading for the stairs without a backwards glance. If her death bothered him, he concealed it well. "'It was rare that I found myself perplexed. "'However unhappy their marriage had been, "'he must have felt something for this woman. "'The realisation that his words "'had inadvertently ended her life "'should have inspired at least a measure of remorse. "'If not shame, he ought to have shown fury "'at my twisting of his command. "'But the anger was absent. It was almost as if he had expected this outcome, even counted on it. With this revelation in mind, I appeared at the top of the staircase. My summoner paled at my materialisation, but his reaction was quickly controlled. I made no effort to hide my laughter. You anticipated this, I accused. That command was given in the hope that I would choose to kill her. He sighed gently. I couldn't be sure, of course. But from all I could gather of your history, it seemed fair assumption. But still, quite a risk to take. My smile was overly wide. I leaned towards him, taking perverse satisfaction in the discomfort he couldn't entirely hide. Since you knew that I would sabotage the spirit of your wish. It was his turn to laugh. You forget what I am, he answered softly. As a politician, my career is based on serving the people, all the while withholding that which they actually want. It's a game I've excelled at. You might have demonic power, but you cannot act without my wishes. And you'll find I've chosen them well. For my second command, you will attend the televised debate this evening. You'll appear as me and behave in no way that will affect my career. What you will do is discredit the opposing speaker. I want the audience to leave with the intention of voting for my party. Am I understood? I gave an elaborate bow. I live to serve. The representative for the opposition was an older man. "'with more dignity than hair. "'When he spoke, it was with gentle confidence. "'It was easy to see how the voters would be torn "'between his calm assurance "'and the restless passion my summoner brought to the role. "'My orders were to discredit this man. "'I had no choice to obey them "'without sabotaging my master's campaign in the process. "'That was a shame.' But I could still rebel in spirit. There was no need for my master to look impressive or memorable. Speaking as him, I blathered conventionally about health, education, pensions. Turning to the opposing candidate, the programme host asked him to summarise why the British people should vote for his party. My opponent seemed not to hear the question. Ladies and gentlemen, sweat beating his forehead, voters and members of the press, I wish to make it known that I am strapped to a bomb. There was a stir in the people around me as the trembling man removed his jacket to reveal an impressive belt of explosives, which hadn't been there before. I merely watched unsurprised, for of course I was controlling the hapless creature like a puppet. As he outlined his demand for a 100% turnout in his party's favour, the audience listened with terrified attention. Afterwards, I returned to my master, who was lounging in an armchair regarding the spectacle on television. Was it necessary to detonate? He asked, with quiet scepticism. Your command required that the survivors vote for you, I reminded him. He seemed unfazed by the dozen or so casualties linked to his action. The blast had been smaller than I would have preferred, due to the need to keep my summoner alive for the public. Then the newsfeed changed. But this is not the only story to affect the upcoming elections. One of the two main candidates for the governing party Was found dead only hours ago in his home in London. Police have yet to comment, but they are understood to be investigating the circumstances. With this death occurring so closely to the election date, the party leadership will almost certainly go to Ryan Alster, making him one of the youngest leaders this decade. The screen shifted to an image of my summoner, but I was no longer watching. My attention was fixed on the man in front of me, who regarded the report with a satisfied half-smile. "'You have handled televised debates in the past,' I observed, "'and you knew that I would find some way to sabotage that event.' Blue eyes flickered lazily towards me. "'I was impressed.' admitted by the range of your imagination. but not troubled. I reasoned aloud. After all, that interview was never really your priority. The other lot was a threat for this election. It was the rival candidate for your own party who stood in your way. The same rival who happened to be murdered while you were participating in a televised debate in front of millions of witnesses. It was convenient timing, he conceded. And you didn't dare command me to the real task. He laughed softly. You're too unpredictable to unleash on anything so important. Only a fool entrusts his livelihood to a resentful servant. You fulfilled your purpose well because you didn't understand it. But that business is concluded, which leads me to my final wish. I cannot say what warned me of the danger. Perhaps there was a shadow of a threat behind that silken, self-satisfied tone... Or possibly I had finally come to understand the man I served. At any rate, fear took hold of me. "I, I, I can give you power. I found myself stalling in a voice too desperate for my liking. Wealth beyond your wildest dreams. That is a tempting offer, my master admitted. But you're too dangerous to be relied on. My last wish is to change the nature of your binding. You'll be trapped forever in that vessel. No one will ever summon you again. And that is what happened. I was forced, screaming in fury, back into my golden prison. But that was not the end. There is always some room for manoeuvre, even in the most precise commands. My summoner's wish had trapped me in the vessel, but it hadn't specified that I should be alone. The politician screamed as I dragged him down into the bottle with me. They'll find me, he spat. My smile held an edge of winter. Perhaps, but with Cynthia dead, that seems unlikely. And besides, you have your wish. By containing me, not to mention yourself, you are performing the ultimate
0: public service. Thank you, Susan. Our third story of the evening will be Samurai Sam by Gotham Mammoth. Be read by Kevin Schell. Gotham's short stories have appeared in literary journals in the UK and USA. His story, A Word Like, was shortlisted in the Writers' Village Contest. An excerpt from his novel-length satire, How Bollywood Killed My Family, was selected for the Critty Literary Festival at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He served as prose editor for Papercuts, a literary magazine. Kevin Chen's recent credits include Yellow Face, Chai Macarica, and in film Unlocked, Generation Z, in television, Tyrant, Pop the Record, Twenty Four, Live Another Day, One Child, Obsession, Dark Desires, Bite of the Living Dead, <laughs> Kevin,
5: <laughs>
3: Samurai Sand by Gotham Mamick I find myself in some place scary. A living room. It's nothing like the smart, sparse, safer spiderwebs to Tommy Map cottages I've squatted in my whole life. It's nicer, but nowhere as grand as the Emperor's Palace where I frequented. No longer do. I feel my kimono on me, gentle like a shy woman's embrace. I miss my iron armor. I swerve my right hand to my left side. I still have my sword. I draw it. Scandy opaque room for danger and An ugly sofa with a stain That actually adds character Mantle with smiling foreign faces Two slices of pizza A can of soda And four fallen bottles of beer Float over their own puddle On a mahogany coffee table And beyond that Against a wall Boxes with flickering lights And above those two A portrait Of me on the TV. Son of a bitch, paused it! I shout. (sighs) I notice the snoring carcass on the floor behind the sofa. I poke his naked belly with my sword. He smiles, giggles like he's being tickled. Rise! Only drool from his mouth shudders. I try lifting by wrapping my arms around him. A dead whale washed ashore has more grace, even after having its liver gutted. After many attempts, he's barely standing. State your name, I say to the fat, half-naked man before me. What the hell are you doing in my living room? I- explain. I point to the sword. I point my sword at the frozen TV image. Holy shit! He knuckles his eyes. You're that samurai dude. I nod. "'How can you be there and here together?' he says. "'I sense if there are others.' "'No. The current state of the abode confirms this. "'The other faces in the picture frames no longer live here. "'On the far north corner, atop the kitchen counter, "'a drawing on a box of cereal substitutes sunshine. "'Any natural light has been denied passage through the east wall by drawn curtains.' "'wrinkled pillars, freckled with dust, "'like the palace gates that close in my face. "'Forever. "'That burning memory is still not as deplorable "'as the frozen sight on TV. "'It's one thing to delay my journey of redemption,' I say, "'but to mock me in this fashion is preposterous. "'How dare you!' "'He looks at the screen. "'I'm midway in a screen with my hands up in futile defense,' my eyes fixed on potato-shaped stones frozen in mid-flight, and beyond that, the erratic still motions of villagers in various states of flinging more stones at me. The fat man chuckles at the sight. I ready my sword to dismember him. That's not so bad, he says. Anyway, you escape even though you've been a total dick in this scene. Silence! I brandish my sword between his two chins, terrified You mean, you know my fate? (laughs) Easy, man, he steps back, unafraid, seeing that he is unarmed in his pathetic flaunt of flesh, and remembering my vow, I lower my sword. Sure, lots of times. This one's my favorite, he continues. But after this, seeing things get... Enough! We are the champions! A vociferous chant bursts out from under the sofa. The fat man reaches for the cell phone, answers, hangs up, grimaces. Damn bills! He straightens the creases on his underwear, formed by the folds of protruding flesh underneath. A name, Calvin K., is barely visible, (laughs) veiled by a drooping stomach. He proceeds to the refrigerator... "'consumes orange juice directly from the cart. "'In watching this wordless display, "'I gasp with a harrowing question. "'How can I speak to him when I don't know his language?' "'You can speak Japanese,' I ask, "'trying to word it in perfect kanji characters, "'but have no idea how to, "'and I continue blurting demonic Western alphabets. (laughs) "'Japanese,' he says.' Picking pulp off his naked chest and slurping. Of course not. Hey, your English is pretty good. More importantly, all the alien objects that surround me in this room, I have laid eyes on them for the first time ever, yet I recognize them. I realize at once that I am subjugated to the laws of the domain that confines me. His. His. I cannot be part of such a world Turn my sword upon myself Ritual suicide But then I notice my frozen image on the TV And look back at my pale gray hands Everything else is in color I stare back at the TV screen The profound simplicity of the world I inhabit and understand it black and white, is still a part of me, even if it is far away. I realize that I don't consider this room as much as it does me. How can you comprehend the interactions my journey in there? I point my blade at the screen. If you do not speak my language. Subtitles, he says. My expression demands elaboration. He goes on. The little words at the bottom of the screen? So, I muse. Reading subtitles on a black and white screen is akin to watching a book in color. Huh? He says. I'm thirsty. I insist on service. After all, I've been standing like a statue for hours awaiting stones to flatten my face. He holds up the carton of juice in inquiry. I stare at it. An hour and six bottles each of McCourt's Stout later, we're both in at ease on the couch, though I'm careful that he sits on the side with the stain. "'Best beer in the world, eh?' he says, slowing down in the last bottle from the wonderfully ingenious six-pack. This is the first foreign invention I regret that our superior kind didn't think of first. Beer, I say slowly, knowing I have never tasted it, but yet familiar. It's mind-boggling. Maybe the witch who lives atop the hill on the far side of our village performed voodoo and banished me here to this foreign place full of sights experienced only in heaven. Or hell. It's possible that I'm dead already. This... Beer thing is even better than the sake served by the innkeeper at the last village we requisitioned. We had defeated the warlord of the province and set free the area, or rather just transferred power over to ourselves. Many of my comrades died in that battle. Are you... I correct myself after glancing at his sunken beehive chest. Were you ever a soldier? Yeah, I knew it. And you were conspired against. Dishonored, you now roam the land, seeking redemption. I mirror my own story to his. Something like that? He stretches his toes, the only exertion I have seen him perform. The nails have harvested and been plagued with soot. I insist that he shares his misfortune. He was part of an empire called Choco Fest. They planted flags across the entire southern region of Fat Man's large land. We ruled millions, he lauds. Villagers paid homage to temples called Drydens and were blessed with nourishment. Fat Man was rank of assistant manager at one of these forts. I hear of his heroic involvement in the Discount wars. But then, an even larger empire from the north- northeast invaded through a style of battle called mergers and acquisitions. There was bloodshed, and Fat Man was banished from the empire, stripped of his bronze name tag, a pain I can only compare to a samurai having to surrender his sword. I breathe horror after listening to his tale. Disgusted at myself for having judged him He is in pain But doesn't show it Sucking down the last drop of beer The way a cow sucks on a mother's tit And after which He belches loudly Bearing the silent sound of death Around the room The world he occupies Is more hostile than mine That is why the curtains Are forever drawn Even the sunlight must sting in these parts or there are wolves lurking outside. Well, that's that, he says, flinging the empty bottle on the soft floor. It doesn't break on the carpet. Makes the slightest pat, like my bride's footsteps. What? I say. The beer. It's finished. He has offered me the last of his antidote from pain. I am ashamed and in awe. The leather sofa fights to suck him back in, but he manages to rise to his feet. You want to drive down to town? Drive, I say. Yeah, we can pick up more beer, and maybe some trouble, he grins. He is obviously ready to murder and pillage for this only comfort. I, on the other hand, have sworn never to take another life after the atrocities I committed. That is why I'm not reacting when the villagers throw stones at me. Two years ago, I would have placed their heads into their own hands. I realize I am blocking my own journey by fulfilling another's. What is your name, comrade? I ask. Sam. Sam, assistant manager of Choco Fest. I address him with past glory. He chuckles humbly. That
6: was a long
3: time ago, bro. Bro. When I was 11 years old, my whole family died in a famine. Last year, the new family that I had made perished in a fire when the warring clan set ablaze my village in retaliation for what we did to them. This man, who... Possibly out of shame has to wear another's name on his underwear Has accorded me a lifetime bond Over the acquaintance of a single morning Or night I cannot be sure of the time with the darkness around me I scan the room one last time Miniature portraits of laughing life reside in frames atop a mantle The word photographs invades my consciousness Just by seeing them A fat man is in them too looking not so fat, happy. I do not know if his family perished in a gruesome battle, too, but I know they're not here anymore. Maybe he seeks to return to them. I must go, I say hurriedly. You sure? Drive won't take long. I decline again. Hey, what's your name? he asks. I have no name anymore. "'Sam!' I begin, avoiding his inquiry. "'You must promise me something. "'Please, stop these drives to pillage beer. "'No matter how rewarding the Excelsior, "'it will always empty out to pain. "'You have shared with me the last of your rations, "'for which I am eternally grateful. "'Taken me in as your brother, "'a gesture that I could never repay. "'Chill, man!' He gestures with his pudgy hand, but I go on speaking. The hardest part about life is not seeking something unattainable, but not knowing what it is we seek. Uh uh-huh, he says. <laughs> I turn to the TV, begin walking, stop, turn again, draw out my sword, bow, and present it to him. Whoa! He says, Please, I kneel further. It may help you in your journey. Yeah, I can't take that. You need it for. No! I plead him. He doesn't speak further. A warrior's destiny must never be revealed to him. Are you sure about this, bro? He says, holding the sword with both hands. He's already fixated, it, fixated by it, smiling. You deserve it more than I, Sam But remember A true warrior looks for ways Every way to not fight I can make out that Sam is giving serious meditation to what I have just said I cannot make out that he is thinking about Calling his ex-wife Goodbye, Sam I bow Peace Peace, I repeat Agreeing that is a better word I stand before the TV, take a deep breath as Sam sets aside the sword and picks up the remote, finger on play. I have never seen a movie, do not even know what it is and how they always have the same ending. Entering back into my war-torn world without my sword, I believe in the power of miracles.
0: you, Kevin. And that ends the first half. You have 15 minutes to polish seven pairs of patent leather shoes. Or perhaps more plausibly to polish off your drinks and order replacements. Evening Standard Award nominee for A Man for All Seasons, Tony Bell has performed all over the world with award-winning all-male Shakespeare company Propeller, playing Bottom, festa, Autolicus, and Trannier. TV includes Coronation Street, Horby City, Summer's Murders, EastEnders, and The Bill. He's also a radio and voiceover artist.
6: Tony! <laughs> <laughs> Ventriloquism for Dummies by Jonathan Pinnock I wasn't Arthur Wilton's first partner, that honour belongs to a chimpanzee called Jethro. But Arthur's relationship with Jethro had ended before I came on the scene. I wasn't aware of the details. All I knew was there'd been some unpleasantness ending with Jethro being burnt to death. The only hint I ever got of what had happened was much later on when young Darren picked me up and started playing with me. Arthur snatched me out of Darren's hands, yelling at him that he should never, ever mess with that thing. He called me that thing, until he'd had some proper training. It was all too easy for them to get inside your head. Needless to say, I didn't understand a word of this. But by this time, the man was a drunken old fool, and his career was heading straight down the tubes. Let me tell you, there's nothing worse than working for a man who's off his face on cheap bourbon. By the time he finally quit, the only gigs he could get were children's parties, and he had to give those up after he pissed himself one time too many to think we'd once had our own TV show. Whatever Arthur may have said, Darren never bothered to do anything about getting properly trained. I think he decided that the act should die with Arthur, and they were all set to put me in the coffin with him, but Darren snatched me away at the last minute, saying you never know when you might need something like that. If I'd known what he had in mind, I'd have opted for the furnace without a second's hesitation. When I used to work with Arthur, I had some dignity. He used to dress me up as an old brigadier, and I'd spend most of the act sounding off about the state of the world in an amiably reactionary manner. It wasn't particularly funny, but it had a certain charm. But when that little shit Darren got hold of me, everything changed. His big idea was to turn the act on its head and reveal the brigadier as the closet pervert that everyone had expected him to be. Everyone? Well, every puerile dickhead under the age of 25, maybe. Unfortunately, every puerile dickhead under the age of 25 was now the target demographic. When Darren carried me on stage, I started off with a gimp mask on my head, making a sort of muffled moaning. I then proceeded to writhe about in ecstasy for several minutes and Darren quickly learned how long he could drag this out for, finishing in a full-throated roar as I reached a climax. At this point, Darren would reach round and remove an outsized black vibrator from my bottom. From there, the act went downhill. Believe me, you didn't want to be in the front row when we were performing. Some of those bodily fluids were real. Success took us both by surprise. We went from blagging a five-minute gong show spot at the Fiddler's Arse in Dagenham to top of the Bill at John Gleur's within a year. The puerile under 25 dickheads thought we were the dog's bollocks. Soon we were booked to appear on every awful programme that Channel 4 defecated onto the screens of the nation of a Friday night. There was talk of us hosting our own chat show. Even the critics were taken in. Oh, we were hot, we were dark, we were edgy. Was Darren clever or just a lucky bastard in the right place at the right time? One thing I do know is that he was a solid useless ventriloquist. Like I said, he'd never been properly trained, and it showed. When a skilled operator is working you, you can feel them inside you. It's like having someone else sharing your head. Weird, but in a friendly sort of way. Well, at least it was with Arthur. I knew where I stood with him, but with Daryl, I felt nothing—not a dicky bird. I was just a few bits of wood, as far as he was concerned. Once, killing time before we went on stage, I tried to see if I could make the journey the other way and get inside Darren's head. For a brief moment, I actually managed it. I looked through his eyes and saw myself lying there in front of him. I could feel Darren's thoughts buzzing around his head as weaselly and unpleasant as I'd expected. I went a bit further. Raise your arm, I thought. Then he raised his arm. Scratch your ass, I thought. And Darren scratched his ass. Then I knew I'd gone too far because I was suddenly thrust back into my own body. Darren was looking at me in a curious and not very friendly way. I remembered what had happened to Jethro and I didn't try that again for a while. Crap, ventriloquist or not... Darren was untouchable. He was the godfather of a whole new scene, the new ventriloquism, or new vent, as it was known to the commissioning editors. At one point, he was working on treatments for half a dozen different vehicles, although the only one that ever saw the light of day was a 45-minute Christmas special featuring us, plus a whole load of other new vent acts of variable quality. And that's when I first came across... Millie Doodle. Millie Doodle was one of the better ones. Her partner was called Chavette, a doll dressed in a Burberry shell suit with scraped back hair and vast hoop earrings. The basic premise of the act was that Millie was an exasperated teacher in an inner city city comprehensive and Chavette was an exceptionally thick pupil who was always getting into trouble. It was targeted with laser precision towards the smug, middle-class audience that we both shared, but quite skillfully done and a good deal more pleasant to look at than our efforts. I think Darren was quite jealous because he started putting the word round that Millie Doodle was only in the bill, on the bill, because she was a woman and a lesbian. I never had much of a chance to compare notes with anyone else in a similar position. This was probably because you didn't often get more than one ventriloquist on the same bill. But I wonder if it was also to stop us sharing too much information. Arthur had always been very careful about putting me back in the box when he wasn't around. And the only other dummy, God, I hated that word, I'd ever really got to talk to was Keith Harris's Orville. And I didn't get a lot of sense out of him. But Darren wasn't as smart as Arthur, and during rehearsals I got dumped in a corner next to Chavette. We got talking. I told her how much I envied her and how I wished my acts had half the quality that hers had. Her response surprised me. She said that she hated going on stage every night, and that awful snob was making her behave in a way that she wasn't like. She was a nice girl and it turned out that she'd been recycled too She claimed that back in the 60s she'd briefly worked for Shari Lewis before being elbowed out of the way to make way for Lamb (laughs) Chop. Millie Doodle had come across her in a Peckham junk shop Then Millie turned up and took her away to rehearse their slot We didn't get another chance to talk that day But in the week between rehearsals and filming... I couldn't get her out of my head. I'd never felt this way before. Was this love? How could it be? We were just... No! We weren't just dummies. We were more than that. More than wood and wire. We had souls. And Chavet was my soulmate. On the day of filming... Everything conspired to keep us apart. Either she was on stage when I wasn't, or I would be on stage when she wasn't. I think Darren had decided by now that Millie Doodle was a definite threat to his position, and she had got wind of his muttering, so neither of them went near each other. It was intolerable, and after a while I decided to risk another jump into Darren's head. I concentrated with every cell in my body and made the leap. Once I was there, I didn't bother to look around this time. I just focused everything on the one message. Take me to Javet. And that's just what Darren did. A second before I scarped back into my own body, the stupid tosser didn't even notice. God, it was good to be with her again. Better still, it was obvious she felt the same. I told her what I had in mind. I I had an idea, a bold and crazy idea to save us both from this shitty, degrading life. She was shocked, but intrigued as well. And as Millie Doodle came over to pick her up again, I managed to persuade her to at least think about it. I could barely concentrate when we filmed our remaining items. And I think even Darren picked something of it up because he kept looking at me in that odd way and fluffing his lines. As everyone was packing up to go home after the wrap party, I happened to catch Chavette's eye. Did I imagine it? Or did she wink back at me? But Darren was in a foul mood. He knew he'd blown his big chance. His big special wasn't so special after all. And to cap it all, the blonde floor manager that he'd been flirting with all day had turned him down. When we got back to his place, he hit the bottle big time. And after consuming most of a pint of Jack Daniels, he passed out. This was my chance. I gathered all my strength together and entered Darren's mind for the third and last time. Without wasting a moment, I yelled out the words. Get out of my head. Get out of my head. Darren's mind wobbled into consciousness, but it was too late. I had the upper hand now. Get out of my head. I bellowed for the last time, and Darren vanished from his own body down into that bloody, stupid dummy. For half an hour, I sat there in Darren's check my chair, staring at my former self, watching and waiting for Darren to try to come back at me. But he didn't have a clue what to do. He just lay on the floor with a surprised expression on his little wooden face. (laughs) Meanwhile, I explored every corner of my new, beautiful, complex, pliable human body. How could anyone take something so extraordinary for granted? Then I reached into Darren's pocket. I pulled out his mobile phone. I'd never held such a thing before, but I'd seen Darren use it, and the number I wanted was on the speed dial. It rang a couple of times, and then Millie's voice answered. Well, I said Well, came the reply It's done, I said Me too I'd never felt a heart skip a beat before Come on over, I said Half an hour later there were two of us sitting in Darren's lounge in front of his fire along with two surprised looking dummies So what are we going to do? said Chavet. What are we going to do, I said. I think we need to find a new way to earn a living. I'm done with this shit. But first, that fire needs a little more wood, don't you? Think? <laughs> Chavette nodded. As we threw the dummies into the fire, I heard a brief ear-splitting noise inside my head. And I noticed Chavette Winson. She'd heard a scream too. Mm.
0: Thank you, Tony. Our penultimate story will be Footstool by Sunny Type, <laughs> re-read by Beverly Long. Sonny has an engineering degree from the University of Pennsylvania and works as an artist in the visual effects industry, blowing fake things up with fake explosives. In her free time, she thinks and reads and writes as much as possible. Beverly trained at Weber Douglas. She's worked in a range of theatre, including All My Sons, Remembrances of Things Past and Morning Becomes Electra, as well as, most recently, The Vote at Don Mayer Works. She's also worked in TV, including the BBC sketch show, Little Miss Jocelyn, and also film. She's a narrator for the RNIB. Family!
5: <laughs> Footstool by Sonny Tyke The flat came furnished with the bare essentials, and the sofa was barely even that. It was short and firm, and sat in the corner. It took up only a small portion of the wall, leaving the rest exposed. An ocean of white, apart from squares of pale darkness, where pictures must have hung before. There was a flimsy layer of padding covering the sofa, And as one began to sit down, the illusion of softness would immediately give way to stiff rejection, a refusal to bend. Whenever his mother came to visit, she insisted on perching on the edge of it, as if to fully sit back would be inadvisable. His wife refused to sit on it entirely. In the evenings, she sat on the floor with her book, leaning her back against the offending object, and when she turned to say something to him, whatever the tone of voice, he could not mistake that it had an accusatory tinge. This was not to say that he was not a problem solver. He simply liked to work with whatever he already had. It began one nondescript evening after his wife had stood in the front of the stove, one barefoot on front of the other, stirring a pot of sauce, and he had waited. Shuffling through the letters on the counter, touching their sharp corners, assuring himself that things had happened that day in other parts of the world. They ate their spaghetti and heated the dishes while she padded soundlessly into the living room. She was not a small woman, but she moved through the world quietly, as if to apologise for it. He washed the remaining bubbles of suds down the drain and scrubbed at the rusty metal on the sink. He glanced over through the arched doorway into the living room and saw his wife on the ground, shifting her body, trying to find a position in which she would be comfortable. Will you please just sit on the sofa, he said. His voice was sharp, and it was only the sound of it that made him realise he felt angry. You know I hate it, she said. I can't stretch out up there. Her eyes were the brown of a mule. Put your feet on a chair, he said. No, she said, and went back to her book. He felt a swelling in his throat, a small hysteria that rose from his chest and into his face. He needed her to sit on that sofa. himself. She would. He had practice moving her, a power that he never thought about or asked for. But to want things from another person was to throw them off their course. To simply stand an inch closer to her would pull her into a different orbit. He went and sat behind her, who began massaging her shoulders. She shrugged him off. "'Her first impulse was always this when he touched her. "'It was unclear if they had enjoyed this dynamic in the past "'or if it was in some ingrained female behaviour "'that a woman needed to be convinced. "'He slid onto the floor to face her "'and noticed, not for the first time, "'how the skin around her eyes had become thin "'and now revealed a darkness beneath the surface. "'It unsettled him to look at her so closely.' To think of her was different. When he pictured her face, it was a pleasant approximation, an averaging of all the times she had smiled or cried, all the times she had looked at him. That seemed to be more correct than this frame of her face in that single moment. He removed her shoes. Sit up there, he said. She sighed, put her book on the floor, and moved herself up. The couch emitted its usual plastic groan, its injection of judgment. There she sat, straight-backed, and he began to massage her feet, digging his thumbs into the arch of her left foot, and then her right. He expected her to relax, to melt into the sofa, but she continued to look at him as if she was waiting for something else to happen. It was a look he recognised, one she had been giving him for years. With her leg in his hand, he lifted it slightly and felt the weight of it. That was when it occurred to him. He was already kneeling, and he put his hands on the ground. Before she had the chance to protest, he pushed his body up under her legs, So they rested on his back. "'What are you doing?' she laughed. "'Stop it! Are you comfortable now?' He tried to turn his head to look at her face, but she had shifted to the side and was out of sight, and in a way, he preferred it. He imagined her smile fading, her hesitation, as she pulled the hair on the back of her neck. "'This is ridiculous,' she said. "'I feel ridiculous.' I'm serious, he said. Just let me do this for a while. Fine, I don't really understand, but fine, she said, and leaned over and picked up her book. She crossed one foot over the other, pushing harder into his back. The carpet was thin, and he could feel the floorboards beneath it with his knees and hands. It made him feel solid. Heard a page turn and hostile sniff. After only a few minutes, his body began to ache. He focused on the reassuring weight of her legs and tried to make himself perfectly still. They passed an hour in this way, before his wife insisted that he get up. You're very silly, she said. and She took his hand and led him upstairs to bed. That night, she slept fitted into him, with her soft, regular breath warming the crook of his arm. The following evening, there was a formality to the easy silence they normally shared. She prodded a baked potato with her fork while asking him how work was, without looking up. After dinner, he watched her carefully as she went into the living room. Again, she sat on the floor with her book. But when he came towards her, she glanced up. And whether it was or not, he took this for a small admission of interest. He felt a tenuous thrill. That they might be drifting into a place they had not been. He got on his hands and knees without asking. She protested, but less forcefully than before, and soon her legs were resting on his back. At first, she was careful not to move too much, but he could tell when she had relaxed. She rolled around from time to time and occasionally jiggled her foot. His knees soon began to throb with pain, and he made a note to stop in the shop the next day after work and look for a small pad to kneel on. Then he stared at the grains in the floorboards beyond the carpet and felt as though there was a pattern to them which he could understand. Subsequent evenings continued in this manner. They never spoke of it. It seemed important that they did not speak. Each night, the time he spent in this position grew longer. She would read or crochet or talk on the phone to her sister, The idea that she was using her husband as a footrest seemingly to fade in her mind. One night, as if she had forgotten entirely, she placed her tea saucer on his back when she went to the toilet. It was hot, but not unbearably so. And it pleased him to remain so solid and still that nothing fell to the ground. He began to regard the experience as an imposed meditation he would concentrate on the white buzz of the refrigerator in the kitchen. The small noises of the woman he'd spent 15 years of his life with, that she made when she felt unobserved. And he would feel a calm, he was certain, he had never known. When the evenings were over, they went upstairs. She became shy, as though she was unprepared for the distance they had cultivated to close. She would shut the bathroom door while she changed into her pajamas, brushed her teeth, removed her makeup. And while he prepared to sleep, she would lie on her half of the bed with her reading glasses at the end of her nose, deliberately studying her book until the light of his bedside lamp was off and he was under the covers. But after she turned her lamp off too, she moved towards him in the dark. On the final evening, he spent as a footstool. After they had assumed their usual positions and enjoyed an hour of silence, the telephone rang and she answered it. Hi, Mom, she said pleasantly. What? She sat up, putting her feet on the ground. Is he all right? A few moments of silence. Why didn't you tell me before? Sounds serious It sounds pretty fucking serious All right, all right, all right Please call me back Do you promise to call me back? She hung up the phone He remained on all fours, not wanting to move He concentrated on keeping his back very straight and wanted to feel the heaviness of her feet on him again My dad had a heart attack. She was not crying. He's going to be okay. They said he's going to be fine. Still, he did not move. He breathed regularly, aware of the bristles of the carpet digging into his palms. The droning of the space heater in the corner seemed to grow into a roar. Finally, he turned his head towards her. ''Is he going to be okay?'' he said. ''You aren't supposed to speak to me.'' Her face was passive, but when she blinked, it was as though a curtain had been drawn. The sharp crash of a shutter coming down. She stood and left the room, her footfall sending vibrations up his arms. And when he followed her upstairs, she was already in bed, close to the edge facing the wall. The next evening, when he came home from work, his wife was not in the kitchen. He found her in the living room, sitting on the sofa, gazing out the large window onto the green of the park across the road. Her legs rested on a piece of furniture. A footstool, upholstered with shiny burgundy fabric, it stood on four stained wooden legs that were carved to look like feline paws. She rose and went to greet him, pressing in her lips into his and holding on to him tightly. When she let go, she made a small gesture towards the footstool. I took care of it, she said, and then she went into the kitchen to prepare their dinner. world had changed. He stood and looked at it, feeling disappointment and relief. The prospect of what he desired most, gone. The sun was setting, and the shadow of the footstool cast on the carpet developed an increasingly hard edge. Finally, he sat down.
0: Thank you, Beverly. Uh, before our final story of the evening, some notices. The Lions run a loyalty scheme. Come to four events and get the fifth entry for free. Just collect the stamps on the flip side of the Lions' business cards on the tables before you. We normally stamp them when you pay. But anyone who brings us an unstamped card after the final story will get you started. The Liars will return on the 9th of June with a special event, near and far, a night of translated works from Lithuania, Poland, Germany, Slovenia and the Czech Republic. If you are a writer, our next open theme is Dungeons and Dragons. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings, are on the Liars' website. And so, the final story of the evening will be Tarts Aren't Gentlemen by Alan Graham, be read by Helen Bell. Alan studied creative writing and economics at UEA, and is still unsure which discipline relies on make-believe more. He currently lives and works in London. Helen trained at Drama Studio London and Northumbria University. The Theatre performances include Verdict, Northern Star, The Trial of Mary Antoinette, Beauty and the Beast, Forest Creatures, A Christmas Carol, Battle in the Hills, and The Storm Watchers. Radio includes HR, Saturday Review, Front to Right. Helen!
2: "'Armed Gentleman' by Alan Gray. "'At the stroke of midday, Madame Florizel burst into my bedroom "'and demanded I sneer at a dildo. <laughs> "'Help yourself!' I mumbled pitifully from under the duvet, "'sliding a hand out to gesture feebly towards my wardrobe. "'The previous evening I had attended my friend Binky de Winter's media launch party,' and the usual combination of alcohol, chemicals, and generous expense accounts had left me feeling somewhat frazzled. Not any dildo, Natalia, you chump, Florizel snapped derisively. This particular one is important. I shall be waiting in your living room to discuss this with you when you have made yourself presentable. You have ten minutes. Well, I ask you. That's not really a sort of wake up one needs when not experiencing the afternoon after the early morning before. I have a feeling this might be of assistance. A calm voice gently caressed my ears. It was Lashes, my gentlewoman's personal gentlewoman. <laughs> and what a marvel that woman is. Sometimes I struggle to think how I got by before I, she entered my life. She is efficient, discreet brainier than a box of owls and sexier than a nightclub full of Norwegians. (laughs) (laughs) Past lovers have advised that this powder has been of assistance in similar circumstances. Lashes continued. Handing me a small wrap containing a light blue powder. Have I said what a marvel she is? (laughs) After just two toots, the fog seemed to clear from my eyes, the shakes subsided, and all seemed right again in my particular corner of God's creation. Dashed marvellous stuff, that, I applauded almost immediately. You could market it and make a fortune. Lashes nodded, accepting the compliment. Regrettably, the legal current status of most of the ingredients make that impossible. I commiserated while I dressed donning a smart shirt, a casual tweed suit, finishing the look off with a shepherd-check tie and stylish correspondent shoes. Lashes, <laughs> To apprové, I asked, displaying the full ensemble. Worthy of my name, she replied, which is high praise from Lashes. So with her flattering words ringing in my ears, I braced myself and walked into the living room. I don't know if there are many folk in London who haven't heard of Madame Florizel, but for the benefit of those lucky few who have never come across her, just imagine the most
4: formidable
2: headmistress you have ever met. Now double it and add money. She owns several of Soho's respectably disrespectful nightclubs, three saunas and six MPs. More importantly, she knows my father, and that makes her trouble. She grimaced when she saw my outfit. "'It does so disappoint me, Natalia. "'This lifestyle you lead, "'it makes me think about your father "'and the hopes he had when he sent you to England. "'Ah, yes, dearest Papa, "'packed me off from Russia when I was five "'to an all-girl boarding school, "'there to be raised as a perfect English princess. "'Well, he got two-thirds of that, at least.' "'If your father knew what you were getting up to here,' "'she shot a poisonous look at Lachance. "'well, I'm not sure you'd be quite so willing to subsidise this nonsense. "'That's why Madame Florizel is such a mess. "'One word from her to her par in Moscow, and it's curtains for my allowance. "'Thankfully for yours truly, the woman is as corrupt as a porn-site "'However,' she continued, "'I would worry what shock such news would do to the man. "'If I could be persuaded that you were making yourself useful here in London, "'I would feel more relaxed about not keeping him informed.' "'Ah!' I exclaimed. <laughs> "'So that's why you want me to sneer disapprovingly at a lady's pleasure wand?' "'I could see her resist the urge to roll her eyes at my flippancy.' There has just arrived in London a particular rare antique pleasure wand. It was made for Catherine the Great herself, and experts believe that it was modeled on her favorite horse. However, <laughs> <laughs> if a kind soul was to put about the rumor that it might not be the genuine article,
4: I can grab myself a bargain
2: right from under the nose of Madame Latouche. I don't think I need to say much about when madames fight madames. It's like a scene in Jurassic Park, only less fluffy. (laughs) And that was why, just a short amble through Soho later, I found myself in Kenny Branners erotic emporium, trying to look askance at a priceless mahogany (laughs) lollipop. I sneered most emphatically and convincingly. I beg your pardon, the assistant gasped. I said, Sst. <laughs> I repeated, and I jolly well meant it. I can't believe Bran is now sunk to trying to hoodwink the decent folk of London with forged minge buttons. <laughs> the assistant was clearly hurt by my totting and it is best to convince me I had erred. Extolling the virtues of the craftsmanship, he passed me the plucky vaginal adventurer so that I could judge things close up. And that's when I heard the click of a camera. Aha! I turned to see the odious Victor Spargo standing in the doorway. Spargo and I are not friends. He's a politician with certain aspirations regarding UK independence, and at the few dinner parties where I've heard him outlining his policies, I may have implied that I felt his proposals had all the sense of a senile blancmange. I knew that if I followed you in sorrow, I'd catch you up to something you'd pay good money to stop your father seeing, and now I've caught you buying that, that husband-replacing lady stick. Dash it, Spargo, I responded in protest. Whatever happened to your good old-fashioned British decency? That seemed to strike a nerve, and the chump's features drooped. He then had the brass to try and justify himself. It seemed that his recent attempt to stage a patriot's carnival had been a financial disaster the fathead had not anticipated that a float carrying the Rochester Rotary Club's minstrel show was not quite the thing to send along the Brixton Road. <laughs> As a result, the man had been stuck for some quite considerable damages. Unfortunately, the toad could not be swayed from his threat that if I didn't assist him financially, his photo may find its way to my father. This is the precisely the sort of news that is best dealt with by turning to drink. So I took a taxi straight home to get lashes to shake up one of her marvellous cocktails. However, no sooner had I walked through the door in my flat when Harry Hattrick Thomas, a handsome producer friend of mine, leapt up from my sofa. "'What ho, you divine creature!' he yelled, stroking his hipster moustache. "How's tricks, what?' At this point, I felt the need to unburden myself of the day's travails and how this whole episode involving a Madame, a crooked politician, and a valuable cunny butler might not pan out golden for yours truly. Well, aren't you glad I came over? Smiled Patrick. I wanted to ask if you will reconsider my offer. We're just about to start shooting the next series of my of my reality show, Pretty Little Things of Chelsea and I'd still love you to be on board. <laughs> That's the problem with Hattrick He can be a riot at parties, but when it comes to trying to inveigle me into his dreadful television programme, he's the purple pin. Of course, he mulled ominously. You'd need to be a bit more feminine, grow your hair, wear designer heels and expensive little black numbers. play at being Daddy's English Rose. Oh, I can see you. In a gripping love triangle with the dashing Sebastian Felch and the scheming Chlamydia Winchester. <laughs> See what I mean? Ghastly stuff. But at this precise moment in time, staring disinheritance in the face, my resolve weakened, and I nearly signed up to the home Farago. That's when Lashes quietly coughed in the corner. <clears throat> if I may interject she began. But if you are considering the issue of Catherine the Great's equine stimulator, I believe that the threat posed by Madame Florizel has somewhat diminished. Shortly before you returned, ma'am, I telephoned Black Branagh's erotic emporium and arranged for it to be delivered as a gift from yourself to Madame LaTouche. I gasped. Headlash has gone mad. She clearly saw my shock, but calmly continued. It struck me that in the current circumstances, Madame Latouche would be a fine ally to cultivate. You see, she is currently being repeatedly personally intimate with your father. Good Lord, I exclaimed. He's landed himself yet another madame. Lashes nodded. He does rather appear to have a taste for them. A taste is hardly the word I use, I commented. I mean I have a taste for chunky Kit Kats, but I know the start seven. <laughs> Very true, the man, Lashes replied. However, despite his womanizing reputation, I have heard from the staff on his super yacht that he is particularly taken. Certainly I feel any tale sent by Madame Verazel could be effectively diminished by an ally at close quarters. That's all excellent, Lashes, I exclaimed. But it still leaves the nuisance of Victor and his dashed photo. I would not worry about that either. I have on good authority that Mr. Spargo is a regular visitor to an athletic young gentleman named Ron, who, if the message left in the phone such a believed, promises an anal experience of some considerable merit. This point patrick chipped in. Hang on! That can't be right! Isn't that Spargo fellow the person who blames any bount of inclement weather on excessive gayness? Indeed, nodded Lashes. Good Lord, I smiled, the pen dropping. The man can hardly lead a far-right movement, blaming homosexuality for bad weather, if he and Rahul are secretly knocking out typhoons on the sly. Sorry, Hattrick, looks like you'll need to find another leading lady. Hattrick harumphed and exited with an air that, if, if not exactly disgruntled, was far from being grunpled.
5: <laughs>
2: well, lashes, I said, my usual bonhomie entirely restored. i think this calls for a gin and tonic.
4: She coughed discreetly.
2: <laughs> I have already taken the liberty of preparing one. Treble tangling, of course. I looked down. There the bally thing was. Lime <laughs> wedge and all, sitting in my hand. I took a healthy swig. By crikey, Lashes, that hits the spot. What do you put in them? They are a labour of love, mistress, she said, and one sultry eye
4: fluttered in a week.
2: I began to feel a certain, what is it, in my nether regions as the Tanqueray worked its magic. Capital, I heard. Tell you what, how about you take charge in the bedroom tonight? She nodded. I have already installed my equipment, (laughs) ma'am. I raise my glass and salute. Very good, lashes.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Helen. And that, ladies and gentlemen's gentlemen, (laughs) is that you are dismissed. But do feel free to stick around and spend the remains of the day in our company. And now please give hearty thanks to tonight's authors and...